Today's scripture reading uh, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 through 13. Um, again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 through 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find a Bible in front of you in the chair below, and um, you can turn to page 897. Uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purges the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Would you join me as we continue worship as we pray? Lord God, would you open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that the Holy Scriptures, as it was read and now as it's proclaimed, that we may hear with joy and delight what you say to us today through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Last week, Pastor Eugene preached from the first five verses of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians making the case for discipline, church discipline. And we learned about a man who was having a sexual relationship with his mother-in-law, basically committing incest, and instead of mourning as a church, instead of correcting as a church, the Corinthian church actually was being boastful and arrogant about their openness. And we learned last week the basics of church discipline and how church discipline serves to expose sin, that there is sin, by pointing it out, that there's immorality there. And it also serves to warn the unrepentant sinner. As hard as it is through excommunication, it warns him to come back. And we're reminded that all of this the reason for doing church discipline is ultimately to save the sinner, to restore that person. And we continue from the first five verses now to today's uh, passage that Sung read, shifting from understanding church discipline from the realm of reclaiming the individual back for the sake of the sinner to shifting for the purity of the church, for the integrity of the church. Um, 
many of us uh, probably have some knowledge of people in our life who experience cancer, our loved ones near and far. And upon hearing about the discovery, one other thing, especially if, it's get, if it gets discovered in the early stages, we uh, were informed that you know, they're going to go into an operation and cut out the cancer so that it doesn't spread. And one of the things that we are informed after the surgery is you know, the people that we love um, telling us that you know, they got it all out. They removed everything. Um, because the last thing we want is for that cancerous malignant um, cell to grow again and return. Um, today's passage shows us the power of what happens when sin is left un corrected, unattended. Now, um, as we saw in verse 2, the Corinthian church was being proud about tolerating this incestuous man's behavior. Um, But in verse 6, we are reminded that boasting is not a good thing here. It's a wrong thing to do. Now, probably they're unaware, perhaps, of the corrupting nature of sin. Um, And we see the need, Apostle Paul here now shifts to give us a metaphor to make the case, make the case for church discipline. You got to do this. And he does it by going back to the Old Testament and bringing the metaphor of the Passover. Um, now, at the Passover, all leaven was removed from the home. Now, leaven, for those of us um, you know, who, who bake, you might be somewhat familiar, but um, you know, when you're baking the dough, you would uh, take a, whatever that you're making the bread with, set that in a pan, whatever you do, and you'll put it in the oven to bake. But um, back in those days, you would take off a small piece and roll it up into a bowl and put it in water. So you cook the bread, and now that little bowl of dough in water is left, and that is the leaven. And you will leave that so that next time you bake, you you have access to that to bake again. And over a period of time, that little dough would become a little sour, and you would take it out next time you um, bake, put it into the flour and the dough now to start all over again. And by mixing it through, it will permeate, and it will get a nice fluffy bread. Back in Exodus 12, when God is calling the Israelites out of bondage of slavery, um, he calls a feast of unleavened bread. So the feast would go for seven days. But before the feast starts, um, the Israelites were commanded to go through their house and look for any leaven. Um, and they had to get rid of it. it was, they, were, they were called to basically purge their home from any leaven at all. So before they would sacrifice the animal, often an unblemished lamb, they would first remove all leaven, all yeast, Uh, from home. And after it's removed, then they would bring the animal to be killed. And in in the first time, the blood was posted on the sides and the top of the door. Um, You see, Israelites had been living there for centuries, and they were integrated into the culture of Egyptian civilization. And God really wanted a clear cut, a separation from their old way of life that they'd been in slavery to a new life that he was calling them out to. And the final act of separation was actually the Passover. Remember, the blood of the lamb was 
placed on the doorpost. And as the angel of death passed over, it separated those who were under God and those of the Egyptians who were not. And, you know, those who did not have the blood of a lamb uh, on their doorpost, their firstborn was killed. And in so doing, God made a clear separation. So this sacrifice of the lamb symbolized the separation of Israel from Egypt. Now, as the Israelites were leaving, um, they were commanded not to bring any leaven at all, obviously. So the only thing they could take was unleavened bread. Um, They couldn't bring any bit at all. What God wanted was a total radical separation from the old life. Not a tiny bit of leaven was to be brought to a new life of freedom as they were leaving. Passover lamb signal the separation. In, in American, we have the saying where one rotten apple spoils a barrel, and maybe you two have been like me, buying a bag of apples without carefully looking and realizing when you come home, and then your wife, you know, says not so nice things because you didn't check. And uh, it shouldn't happen as much, but it still happens once in a while. Um, and and we, we see this reality in, 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 the, in the way we live. Um, but what's important is here, and especially when you look at verse 7, um, Apostle Paul makes it clear of something that's really unique and interesting and significant. He points out that you, meaning you, Corinthian church, you are unleavened. You are unleavened. He doesn't say you ought to be unleavened, but he states it as a fact. You are unleavened. Now, live as one. Um, Throughout the Bible, there is this tension, appropriately, this indicative of what God has done and the imperative of how we are to live. Fast forward from, you know, um, Exodus 12 to Exodus 20, after the, you know, bringing out, God says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of land of slavery. So that's the indicative of what God has done. Because of what I've, what I've done, now do this. And God gives the imperative don't have any other gods before me. And the next Ten Commandments is based on the indicative of God. The imperative that God demands of us believers is based on the indicative of what he has done. Indicative is the foundation for the imperative that he commands of us. And the identity that the Corinthians have, identity of what Christ, this Passover lamb, has done, informs their behavior, how they are to live, because they have been set free. They have been set apart. They're called to this permanent festival of Passover imagery in this redeemed community, in this life. Um, They're called to um, continue to live this way, Um, Now with this new Passover lamb sacrifice, now that it's done, they are to live by making sure that any impurities are removed. The leaven really points to those sins of the former way of living. 
And now as a new Christian, believers are to live unleavened Christian life. The famous verse that you may have memorized from 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. It's really bringing, it's, that, that is really talking about this reality of separation and what it means to move from the old to new. Um, and this is, this is serious because what's at stake um, really is not just about one man's sinful behavior. Because what's at stake is left unattended, the entire batch is going to go bad. So actually, the worst thing is not, it's, it's the failure of the church to not discipline this man. Because by not disciplining, by not taking the sin out, the entire batch, entire community, entire congregation is going to be infected. This uh, Passover metaphor is being used again and again, and they are going to miss the whole point of the Feast of the Festival of Feast of the Unleavened Bread if they don't go through with church discipline because infection will spread. Um, what happens, it's easier when a sin, a grievous sin, unrepentant sin, um, is hard to confront, but if we don't confront that one sin, later on, everyone is going to have to deal with it. Um, just like you know, a bag of apples with one that's bad to um, cancer cell that's left unattended, it's going to uh, spread. Here we see this example of leaven that is going to spread. And the call that God gives to the people of Israel to remove leaven, um, what represents evil. In verse 8, we see this um, call for celebrating the feast, the feast of unleavened bread. And Apostle Paul continues the metaphor, using that metaphor, saying, you know, instead of with the leaven of malice and evil, you know, instead of that, we are to um, celebrate with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And these are obviously metaphors that he's using. Um, and this is a continual celebration that the people of God are supposed to live with. Um, it's not a one-time thing, but it's, it's, the verb tense, is we are called to continually celebrate. And these two um, words, leaven of malice and evil, two synonyms for evil, is contrasted with leaven, unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the meanings of goodness, so they're contrasted evil versus goodness here. And, um, you know, there's an interesting play on word. In, in the beginning of the chapter, we talked about pornea. Uh, root for sexual immorality. The word evil is actually poneria. They are very similar, and they sound very similar. One referring to sexual immorality, one referring to evil, but evil often referring to the activities of the devil, Satan. Um, and so we see, instead of celebrating with leaven of malice and evil, um, um, we are called to celebrate by feasting on unleavened bread, of sincerity and truth. Um, sincerity and truth referring to really purity of mind, something that a believer would have. Um, and it's really about this ruthless commitment to pursue God and um, His fellowship in Christ. 
Um, the word here, um, it's not about perfection or sinlessness, but it's really about openness and honesty, especially in light of the need to expose our sinful areas, that we allow the truth to be um, revealed, that we are open to that. And this is what we're called to do, perpetually feasting in this way with purity of action. Um, you are unleavened, so live as one. Um, the sacrifice has been made. The sacrifice of the Passover lamb has been made. Remember I t told in the beginning, you would typically get rid of the leaven before the animal is slaughtered and the blood is placed on the door frames, right? The, the sacrifice of Jesus has been made, but there's a blatant leaven in your midst. The life of feasting in Christ because of what Christ has done, we are called to continually feast by removing the leaven when we see it. Now, earlier we, we realized that Apostle Paul wrote a letter before. We don't, we don't have it with us. But he wrote a letter pointing out this issue. Now, there's some misunderstanding uh, from the Corinthian church. They may probably have assumed that what Paul's expecting, this um, call to separate themselves from the immoral people of the world was just too radical of a thing, something that they can't do. It's not like they can you know, get up and just move to some island and not um, you know, deal with that kind of issue. Although when you study history, there are plenty of people um, who tried to create a separate um, society, um, you know, communities in that way. And, but that's not what Paul's calling to do. That, you know, um, Paul did not want the Corinthians not to associate with sexually immoral people, actually, who are outside the church. Um, what he was trying to get at was not to associate with those who are in church. The call to separate, the call to um, not eat with, not to associate, was really a call within those who call themselves believers. Now, the word associate is a pretty significant word. And, you know, in the English language, we might say, you know, um, like, really, don't do this. Um, seriously, don't do this. We'll, we'll put words like that. In, in, in Greek, they'll often add prefixes to emphasize, or they will um, um, add like double compound word to double the intensity. And this word associate is an expressive double compound, and it's a emphatic word to point out, you know, don't mix up with them in any way. Have no intimate fellowship of any kind with those professing Christians who persist in blatant sin and are unrepentant. That's what Paul is trying to make clear. Because they missed it the first time. He wants them to know, okay, this is what I mean. And when you see verses 9 and 10, you see um, three types of sin. Um, 
Paul points out that he mentioned before, you know, there's sexual immorality, Pornia, we, we talked about that last week. There's also greed and um, swindling, and there's also idolatry. So if you look at these three types, you have the sin of fornication, sexual immorality, that's really sin against the body, that was pointed out um, with the, the man who was committing incest. You have greed and swindling, which is sin against other people because you are regarding uh, people as things to be exploited. And the third category is the sin of idolatry, where you sin against God. So you have you know, sin against the body, sin against others, and sin against God. That's uh, set up here, and you see this again in later verses of the chapter. And these things repeat, actually, throughout the book. And these are the things, unfortunately, that the, um, the Corinthian church was really struggling with. Um, maybe they don't know that they're struggling with because you know, they didn't know what sin was and how it's affecting them. But Paul, Paul is pointing out, um, if, if a brother or sister in Christ claims to be a believer but is committing these kind of offenses, then you are to actually um, excommunicate them. Um, one thing for sure, though, he doesn't believe in being an isolationist, remove yourself, separate. He's not about having no contact, but what he does want, as we see in the entire scriptures, is about not conforming to the patterns of this world. Don't be like everyone. Be separate. Be separated. Um, it's the unrepentant, blatant sin that are to be um, combated against. Um, when you look at Deuteronomy, um, the, the sins that we, we see in verses 11, in verse 11, there are six that are listed. Out of the six, five of them actually come up in Deuteronomy, different parts of the um, chapter chapters. And um, so it pretty much parallels the Septuagint. So Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament, okay? So Apostle Paul is probably looking at the Greek version as what's around. And, you know, the first one, sexual immorality, um, it comes up in Deuteronomy 21, and it ends with the, 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 the call for exclusion. So um, in Deuteronomy 21, it ends with purge the evil person among you. Sounds familiar? Because that's the way the chapter ends in chapter 5, right? So all of this builds up, purge the, pur um, purge the um, evil person from among you. So we see that in Deuteronomy. Um, fast forward, um, in another past, uh, second one that's listed is greed. Now, greed is actually not listed in Deuteronomy. However, you can kind of see it go with the last one, um, the, the sixth one, and I'll come back to that. But that, that deals with really covetousness. And this is something that churches often don't deal with, um, but we should. You know, often we're focusing on sexual morality, but greed is something that is something to be dealt with in a same way. Um, people who are grasping for more, not satisfied, and um, just living in that kind of covetous lifestyle. Three, idolaters. We see this in chapter 13 of Deuteronomy, as well as 17, um, worshiping false gods. And to those who do this, again, the same call is given. Cast them out. Purge the evil person from among you. Um, and the fourth one, the revilers, are really slanderers. These are people who are abusive with words, um, with criticalness. This is the violence of the tongue. Um, constantly critical, and um, we see this in chapter 19 of Deuteronomy, and again at the end, the same um, 
call is given, purge the evil person from among you. And we see this with drunkenness, and um, in today's day, it would be equivalent to you know, drunkenness or drug abuse, drug addiction, right? And um, chapter 21 of Deuteronomy is um, also speaking of that, and they're called to do the same. Um, one of our, uh, um, I know a brother who shares about being um, disciplined um, when he was going through something like this, and he's thankful that people loved him enough to discipline him this way. Um, and, and, the, and the section ends with the sixth one, the swindler or robbers or extortioners who, um, who basically use people to gain his own and to even steal. All of this is really about exclusion because God takes separation seriously and God, reali- God knows that sin affects the community and it has to be dealt with because if not, it's going to spread. Um, the, the key difference between Deuteronomy and um, 1 Corinthians 5 here is that in Deuteronomy, it's a second-person singular. You know, the command is given in a singular manner. Here, Apostle Paul, in the verb, when he's person, evil person, this is second-person plural. The responsibility for church discipline is for the entire church. Paul's pointing it out. He has already um, judged but it's the job of the entire congregation to discipline this man. The onus is on all the members to do this. Every single one of these six things, or if you simplify, like five things, um, the Corinthian church had issues with. And we will see this in the next chapter with greed, um, and with the following chapters, um, I think we definitely have a tendency to emphasize the sexual morality, and we should. Um, but instead of um, saying we have a double standard and we don't really deal with greed, idolatry, slandering, or drunkenness, um, and thus not also confront sexual immorality, we should bring these things like greed. And take it seriously. We should take idolatry seriously. Slandering actually is a serious thing that Bible speaks of again and again. And it foments disunity and it undermines um, integrity of the church in that way. And drunkenness. And um, I think this is a serious thing that we need to confront. Do it wisely, but do it. Not shy away from it. Because the, what's at stake is integrity, purity of the church. When you study church history, you, you'll see different movements of people who will try to uh, disengage, disassociate. But here, Apostle Paul makes it clear, um, it's not about disengaging the world. Um, we are called to be a witness, but we are to disassociate with brothers and sisters and judge those inside. The irony is we find ourselves easier to judge people outside the church and be quiet with those who are inside. We, we tend to do the opposite of what's actually commanded because it's easier. 
It's easier to uh, discipline and rebuke people who are not in our local church, who are outside, who are not under this relationship, covenant relationship, and be quiet with those who we see and interact with. We are reminded that we as a church are called to judge those in, and God will be the one judging those outside the church. The holiness of the church is a matter of internal church discipline. And we are not called to be um, thinking the other way around. Um, I don't think Apostle Paul could have imagined that Christians should be kind of living this kind of monastic life um, but again, um, what I think is important for us to remember is that um, complete freedom of association is given to those outside. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean you can go to like an um, idol-worshiping temple and worship in that context, but in terms of meeting, eating, having meals with people who are not believers, who are in sin, is actually something that is okay. Um, every time we close prayer, Pastor Eugene usually does a benediction um, about how we are called and how we're scattered to be salt and light. That salt and light uh, metaphor can only happen when there's an interaction and contact. And Jesus, you know, he continued to minister to those who are living in sin. Um, and we are reminded of that. But I, I think the unfortunate... Sadness is we as a church often, um, you know, do the opposite. We're lax with fellow Christians or those who are in church, um, and we're distant with unbelievers and critical of unbelievers when actually that's, that's not something that we're called to do. And um, instead, you know, um, we, we might find ourselves feeling arrogant or boastful saying, well, I'm being patient with this person. I am being non-judgmental, uh, open-minded, um, and I don't think that is the way um, the Lord would be thinking um, about living out our Christian faith. Um, when we come to the end of the chapter here in verses 12 through 13, we're reminded, um, again, to kind of summarize, there's no objection in eating with those who are sinners uh, outside the world out in the world, excuse me, um, and we are to, to judge, not in a final, final way, but this is about doing church discipline and leaving the judging of the outsiders, the non-church-going community people, to God. Um, we, we, we're really called to think about church discipline um, I think for the most part, especially as I look back to past 50 to 70 years of church history, um, one of the reasons why we feel uncomfortable with church discipline um, is, one, church hasn't really practiced it. We live in a culture where this individual uh, um, emphasis of self is um, raised up instead of understanding biblically what it means to be part of a community. And... It's important to remember, just as the Passover points us to the, the significance of the separation, why should we think about church discipline? It's because God expects separation from evil. Um, 
just as we've seen also in Deuteronomy, this call for exclusion, God understands what's at stake. Um, and I think we need to look at God's word in a humble, honest way um, and think about church discipline for the well-being of the individual who is sinning. It may be one of us. And if, if it comes to a point where I'm sinning, I hope and pray that you can come to me and point it out so that I would be saved. The point isn't to damn that person, but to ultimately to save that person, that he or she would repent and restore that relationship with God and with fellow believers. Because if you don't do anything, what's going to happen is it's going to infect the whole body, just as leaven will inevitably go through the whole dough. Just as cancer, if you leave it alone, in time it's going to spread we're called to take this seriously. Christ has already died. He has already been crucified. He bled the death that we should have bled. He has already been offered as a sacrificial Passover lamb. So death no longer has power over us. It passes over us. Sin no longer has passed over us. Now the point is, well, the sacrifice is made, so but we skip the getting rid of the leaven part. There should be, you, you are unleavened. We are unleavened, brothers and sisters, because of Christ. He has done everything that's necessary to make us unleavened. Now we need to just live it out. Remove sin, evil, and celebrate. Live out that life of the feast of unleavened bread, knowing what has already been done. We're not asking for perfection here, but we do expect us to be committed to this quest for purity, openness, sincerity in being approached as we look at Matthew 18, what it, you know, that we take this call for church discipline seriously, that we as individuals are intentional in examining our hearts and our lives as we did in the morning when we came together, with the corporate prayer confession, but also seriously examine how we are sinning. But also, look around and do the hard part of seeing which brother or sister is in sin. Because if we ignore it, it may very well damn them, and it will infect the church. Not doing anything makes us culpable. Not doing anything stains the purity of the church. I think we often think of maybe verses like, from Matthew chapter 7, don't judge, do not judge, so that you may not be judged. But I think oftentimes we really are living as if, you know what, I'm not going to judge you, so please don't judge me kind of thing. And we totally take that verse out of context, which is really about hypocritical self-righteousness. And when that doesn't preclude us from going through church discipline, as we have seen in 1 Corinthians 5 here, the fact that church rarely exercises church discipline unfortunately, more than anything, is a sign of our unfaithfulness than anything else. Or perhaps 
our indifference, or even more, lack of moral courage on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, we are called to not be separistic, separate ourselves from um, the world. Um, Judging the world is God's part. God's going to do that. But we are called to um, judge within um, by going through church discipline in a way that is um, seeking integrity with humility. We tend to either kind of oscillate from one end of the extreme to the other. Either you will see separatists who want to separate from the world because the world is bad, with all the good intentions, but again, this is not how Bible calls us to live out, um, to remove ourselves from the world. I mean, Apostle Paul just you know, commented, well, that, that's, that's not what I meant. Um, or we are on the other side of the other end. We just accommodate. We're not separate. We're not set apart. Neither is what God's calling us. To be salt and light needs contact. Um, to, to be the kind of church that honors God, that seeks the, the integrity, the purity of church, um, requires us to be bold and courageous as we go back and recognize the Passover lamb who has been slain. Brothers and sisters, um, as we come to end of September already, um, we, are, we have just quarter of 2020 left. As we look back to what's been going on with the COVID, as we find ourselves, especially drawing near the election, and perhaps being critical of people, you know, like aside from our civic duty, um, what is the Word of God calling us to do in light of examining ourselves, what it means to be a church? Um, let's be bold and courageous, but let's also be kind and patient because church discipline, I think one of the things that makes us hesitant also, not because church hasn't done it, but for those churches that has done it, has done it poorly, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue it, but we should pursue it with humility and love and patience. As Matthew 18 calls us, when a brother or sister sins, it's you who have been offended who need to go and confront. When he or she doesn't respond, then you need to bring someone else along with you. And then if that still doesn't lead to repentance, then you bring the entire church involved. Um, May we be a church that is marked by the blood of the Lamb, fearing God, seeking holiness, not out of self-righteousness, because none of us can boast, but boast only in Him, Christ crucified. Um, Join me as we pray.